Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford. We are coming at you from Las Vegas at Scent City at Ford Canine. Today, I get to have a friend back on the podcast. He's been on here before. He has a ton of knowledge and experience, and we'll be doing some seminars together this June. Simon Prince. Simon, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Cameron. It's really good to be back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, for the listeners who haven't, uh, you know, maybe they haven't listened to the episode before or they've only seen your name uh, online a little bit here and there, just let some people know, you know, kind of in short, you know, what your background is and, and what you do and what you're doing today. Oh, Cameron, there are a lot of questions in a few minutes. Uh, <laughs> to bring it uh, in a nutshell, I started um, many years ago, 1996, in uh, special operations, uh, doing some really cool stuff with dogs. Uh, one of the things people might have seen on the internet these days, because we did a lot of classified work in those times, but uh, people see more and more about uh, radio directionals, um, the camera uh, dogs, dogs with sensors and that sort of stuff. Well, that's the program that I started in 1996, and I'm really glad that I see so many people enjoying this type of training. And of course, they are not in the operations that, well, you know all about those operations that we did uh, in those days. But uh, I'm really happy that uh, people are seeing the uh, enormous amount of work that we have to put in to make sure that the dogs are reliable and confident to do the work two or three hundred meters distance away. And I'm, I'm happy that people are enjoying the protocols that uh, we built in that time. So, yeah. That was what I was doing uh, some time ago, I think three, four years ago, I started my own uh, company in coaching, because especially coaching, you know, Cameron, you have been uh, a long way and you have been in the theater also. Uh, eventually, training dogs is not so difficult anymore after some years, but then um, what is really um, having my uh, Total focus is coaching humans because coaching a human end of the leash is even much more fun. Yeah. And uh, around around all of that, uh, I'm building a lot of uh, interesting training uh, devices um, that people probably have seen on the internet. So I think a short introduction long enough in this way. <laughs> yeah. Well, like like you said, um, you know you and I first met each other when you were uh, kind of just starting that directional work and, um, and how far it's, it's come from those days. And a lot of people uh, have probably seen the results of that years later, obviously you and I first made contact with each other in 1999. And then, you know, all these years later, uh, directional work became really popular uh, for detection dogs during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, when it became really important to be able to direct a dog at a distance um, and communicate to a dog 
through radio or to utilize technology such as cameras to see what the dog could see. So you were one of the main, you know, pioneers I know that started doing a lot of that. And then I think people in the United States have heard of Pat Nolan and Pat Nolan has, um, done a lot of the same things on the U.S. side of the equation. So those that are listening and really got into or want to learn more about directionals, Simon is one of the ones who uh, first started that. So that was a lot of work that I know brought you forward into kind of like you said, you know, understanding training better. And I would love for you to kind of recap a little bit about, you know, your struggle with uh, what you knew as a trainer to how you had to try to apply those techniques uh, in a whole new way when the dog was really far from you. And you, in your journey, uh, met up with Bob Bailey and how that really changed you. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you mentioned Pat Nolan. Pat Nolan is a wonderful guy, and I'm really happy that I met him. Because I'm, and I have to make a little joke about that. I think it was in 2000. 10 or 11 somewhere I met him in England on the military um, uh, congress over there and I made a joke I said hey are you Pat Nolan he said yeah I'm Pat Nolan why I said I need to kill you he said you need to kill me why can we drink a beer about it <laughs> I said yes of course but we can drink a beer but in the in the bar in the evening he asked me why do you want to kill me I said I sent you a ton of emails you never responded so we had a, a really big laugh and we were pretty uh uh, we, we worked for quite a long time and it was really interesting. And Pat uh, was the guy that uh, brought me in contact with the field trial uh, Labrador. It's really fun dog to work with. Oh, yeah. But uh, that, that was the side of uh, a side joke of Pat. Incredible, nice guy. And a really talented trainer, also. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I met uh, Bob and Mary and Bailey uh, in 1997 in the US. That was impressive uh, because I was. Um, doing a lot of research about um, uh, animal training in general, and I was hooked by the marine mammal uh, training that I saw in my country, but also in other countries. And eventually, that research brought me to Bob and Marion Bailey because Bob Bailey did a lot of work in the um, uh, marine animals for the, the military uh, in the 60s. So uh, I was really uh, happy that I could uh, work with them, and I. I worked with Bob for, well, I still have contact daily almost with Bob. So, uh, yeah, we worked for quite a long time together. Yeah. And um, that was amazing. The, the most funny part was when I was flying to the U.S. Uh, to meet them. Uh, they let me work in their living room on the table and I had to train chickens. Mm-hmm. Why chickens would everybody ask me? Well, they were not training chickens. They were teaching me operant conditioning and they used chickens for that as live models mm-hmm. and chickens are so fast they are looking at you they they see the little muscle tension in your fingers when you want to use a clicker they see the tension in your eyes or the the little movement of your shoulders um so if you can work with chickens and uh, bob but especially marion was very demanding if you can work with chickens for not one two days but for the five week course that they are doing well then you start to understand how difficult animal training can be because it's not only training the animal, but it's also writing the protocols, collecting the data, analyzing the data, and uh, keep going on. You need to be really perseverance if you can follow those lessons, but 
that was really an eye opener. That was the moment that I started to understand, well, you cannot put a little e-collar around the chicken neck. You cannot put a little protocolar around the neck of a chicken. You cannot slam it on the table when it's making a mistake. That was the moment in my life that I really started to understand animal training is much more wider than I ever uh, learned before. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was wonderful. It was a really a wonderful journey. For that a doubt. I mean, and it's, you like you said, it really helped, I know, mold you into looking at training as a way of communicating better between human and animal and how we have to be very clear about what we are intending, what's our, you know, our main goal and objectives when, you know, whatever the training task is, obviously we're detection. So for us, it's going to be all about, um, you know, the, the, the battle I think most handlers and trainers struggle with is how much do we help? How much do we stay out of the way? Um, you know, the, the dog in front of us, you know, also is unique in itself. So, you and I were kind of talking, you know, off air, you know, about our, we, we're going to be doing obviously some upcoming seminars together in June. So those listeners that if you haven't heard about the seminars that Simon and I are doing together, we're going to do fundamental, our fundamentals and problem solving. And then we're going to also do handler communication and skill building. And then of course, there's a week long one where it's me, you, Dr. Nathan Hall and Dr. Paula Tiedemann doing a full workshop together. And a lot of that, specifically the second seminar there the handler skills and communication aspect. So I'll let you just kind of talk, you know, you're doing a lot of work nowadays with being better as handlers and trainers, uh, you know, educating the human end of the leash. So I'll let you kind of talk about that. And then we'll kind of kind of, we'll kind of go back and forth with some questions based on what you kind of sh- you're sharing and what you're doing as an instructor for teaching handlers and trainers. Yeah, wonderful. I'm, I'm really glad that you bring it up and then I can talk a, a little bit about it. You know, both Mary and Bailey, they told me about simulation, reinforcement, extinction, aversive, generalization. And then if you go deeper in that, it's, it's all about classical conditioning, operant conditioning, shaping, luring, and that sort of stuff, stimulus pictures. But eventually, you are coming not only on the skill sets of the animal that you need for your operations, but you're also coming on the skill sets of your trainer. And, um, you know, if you dive in that sort of topics, then uh, in general, you see that a lot of trainers um, are struggling in how can I become a better trainer? And if you want to become a better trainer, you also need to focus on who you are as a human. And, you know, um, Cameron, there were many times in my life that I was laying awake in the night that I thought I'd never learn it. Um, and I still have those moments that I think, oh my God, if I start with a new dog, can I still do it? That's part of doubt. That's uh, part of belief. That's part of paradigms. Um, those things, before you know it, it will um, bother you in your um, yeah, how can I say that? In, your, in, in, in the way how you interact with your animal. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, we are standing uh, in front of the behavior that we want to see from the animal. And I mean, we try to help, but every time when we try to help, we make it more difficult for the animal. And the, the, the best part that we can do is uh, take distance, let the animal go, have some more patience, and 
create our training protocols in a way that the animal can succeed, is successful 80% of the time, and can step up, step up. And what we understand from animal behavior is that we have to bring protocols in a way to the animal that the animal can be reinforced and will step out of his little comfort zone all the time and make it a little bit difficult, a little bit more heavy, distance a little bit more, a little bit more duration, less odor, that sort of stuff we understand. But if we look into the human part of this, then we don't understand it so really good is my experience. So what I started now in Holland is doing some master classes and I do those master classes in really tiny groups, six people, maybe eight people, but I prefer six people. And why do I prefer six people? Because then I can really set up a safe environment really quickly. And I mean, with a safe environment, the safe environment is not, oh, uh, you cannot hurt yourself or bump into uh, all sort of objects on the ground. I mean, the safe environment is creating a psychological safe environment that people are able to talk about the things that um, they are, that they see as difficult. And uh, what are difficult things? You know, I, I was looking at some work of Renee Brown, uh, a shame expert from the US. Really, she has some marvelous TED Talks. That's all about shame and guilt. And a lot of people are struggling with shame and guilt, even in the, in the animal world. You do things, you have done things that you are ashamed of, or that you feel a little bit guilty of. And then it's not so easy to sit there in the classroom with a lot of dog trainers around you and uh, discuss the things that are not so easy for you. And that's what I uh, bring back in the masterclass, that people can be there and talk about the things that they are struggling with. And then we can create an atmosphere altogether that people starting to help each other. Are you still there? Yep, Cameron? I am there. I'm just listening oh, away. Okay. Yeah, it's, okay. it, it, those are, I mean, obviously... Such good points. Many times, like you're bringing up as, you know, a handler, the hardest thing I think we struggle with is we want to help the dog. We do not want to see the dog do or go through something difficult. So we step in and get involved to help them out versus maybe either resetting and making the environment with less variables in it. So that way there's the opportunity for the dog to find the right answer a little faster or or less confusing. Um, But when we do get involved versus, you know, there's a saying I use, I just say, control the environment, not the dog. And what I mean by that is just like I just said, is I reduce my variables uh, in the environment, which hopefully makes it faster uh, and easier in a way for the dog to find the right answer. And once it finds the right answer, obviously it'll get reinforcement. So that's, you know, just one of the ways that we do it. But I get in like you brought up is our tendency as humans is to really want to help and get involved And that that quality that we need to have. I just basically said it was patience. Patience is not the easiest thing to to have sometimes uh, when a dog or ourselves are learning, you know, whether you're the trainer training a new new handler or you're that new handler with your new dog, all of those things require patience, require understanding, 
require some empathy on the fact of whether it be in this case, most times handlers, the things that you brought up, shame and guilt and things like that, people may bring into the equation when they're training their dog, um, feeling like, well, I don't want to do that to my dog because I mean, I'll give the example. I don't want to withhold any food because I think if I withheld some food, my dog might not be happy with me. Um, things of that nature that kind of, you know, impede some good training along with those other things I mentioned. But we also, like I said, struggle with that we have to win, you know, and sometimes that struggle, the the struggle of learning and figuring out what doesn't work really helps in the growth of the success. You know, you have to have those failures in order to succeed and to know what the correct answer looks like. You know, I think Edison said it, you know, you know, how do you invent the light bulb? We can tell you 999 ways that it didn't work, you know, before he found the one that did work. So, you know, uh, I, I know you're bringing up a lot of those points. What's one of the biggest struggles that you see handlers go through uh, when you're having these master classes and you're talking about human communication, you know, to the dog and the dog back to the human? Yeah, um, I think the biggest one is that we uh, lost our ability to communicate in a open, fair, and honest way. And let me say you this: I, I just wrote a, a book. Uh, it's published in German at the moment. So we are busy with the English translation, and the book is almost five hundred pages. There is some part in the book. And I think it's only three sentences that I wrote something about uh, 1995, 1993, that time that uh, the police in Holland, uh, the police in Europe in general, was using a lot of punishment training at that time. And that I'm happy that I see a change at this moment. So only three sentences. And then there was a, a woman on the internet that was, oh, well, a bad book because it's all about punishment training. And I thought, Mm -hmm. Only three sentences in four five hundred pages. So people are so focused on mistakes. We, it, you know, the first word that you learn as a, a little child is the word no. Mm -hmm. So we are so focused on mistakes that we start uh, that we uh, lost the uh, capability to look into the positive things. And you know, I stopped uh, the feedback. Everything about feedback, what is so normal in dog training. When Trainers are working together. I started to use Feed Forward. There's a, a person in the USA, Marshall Goldsmith, wrote a fantastic book about Feed Forward. And in his mind, in his book, he's telling about the fact feedback is always in the past. So what has happened in the past, you cannot change it anymore. Mm -hmm. So let's focus on the future because that's the only thing you can change. And that's when, when I do some games with, uh, with dog trainers and I I asked five dog trainers to watch uh, the, the, the number six that is coming out there with the dog and doing something. And I asked them after the five minute exercise, what do you see? They are saying me, they are telling me all the, the things that went wrong, all the negative things. And I mm -hmm. said, whoa, 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 let's, let's zoom into the positive things. And then I, I see everybody thinking eh, positive things. Yeah, that's what I like to hear. And you know, if we are looking in, in people, how they communicate, then I see a debate, I see a discussion, and I see a dialogue. And we 
we have lost the capability to go into a dialogue together, to be curious. Hey, I, I, I saw this. Can you tell me why did you do that or why didn't you do that? Because mm-hmm. I'm really curious. No, before you know it, we are in a debate. So that means um, I have my idea, you have your idea, and we don't listen to each other. We keep on hammering this idea for me is the truth and your idea is your truth. Yeah. Uh, or we or we go into discussion and you know in the discussion you always have a winner or you have a loser but <laughs> not, never the win-win and if you go into a dialogue well that's really wonderful because then you will learn a lot from each other and you will learn what is driving somebody to do something or not do something so yeah the biggest thing I see in those master classes is that people are coming back from um, their defensive positions and they start sharing information again yeah and they start becoming curious again that that is really wonderful and they and you know if you can do that then you can also step out your out of your comfort zone because you experience the help from people around you you're not so afraid to make mistakes anymore because yeah, that's the big part of uh Nolan, he was uh, explaining me simon you have to laugh if there are mistakes happening because if there are mistakes happening with your dog you, you start to laugh and in that moment that you are laughing uh, you can also think about what I'm going to do next uh, in the next few minutes from here so that's what I try to learn people in the masterclasses also have fun in the things that you do be happy that you make mistakes because it's all up on condition also for people it's trial and error we have to make mistakes otherwise we cannot learn and if you're so scared to make a mistake, you're so cramped in your body language, you're so cramped in your things that you can do, that the dog is also responding to that. So, yeah, that's, I think that's one of the biggest things. Help each other to step out of the comfort zone. Oh, yeah. And, and like you said, one of the biggest things, you know, it's the culture of today. It's, uh, of course, social media um, with the mindset I think so many go into is just like you said, we have to prove our point and prove that we're right versus maybe sitting back and understanding that we are looking at something from our particular perspective versus looking at it from that dog's perspective or what works for that team, or maybe what job does that team do as a detection dog team? You know, the things that you and I might do with bomb dogs is going to be completely different than what somebody does that does conservation or search and rescue. And you have to have understanding and empathy to maybe look at something from their point of view or why maybe the suggestion that we're giving, you know, may go completely opposite of what they've been told. And maybe there's some validity to what we are offering, but maybe there's not. And we have to be understanding that if they don't take that advice or uh, another trainer comes in and gives their advice by sitting back and listening and understanding a bigger perspective, you know, bringing ourselves up to like the 30,000 feet view versus our six foot view of situations we can see things better and understand. And like you said too, sometimes just sitting back and, and being quiet um, makes us better in the fact that, Oh, wait a second. 
yeah, I might have 30 years doing whatever detection discipline or maybe multiple disciplines, but I'm only able to relate to that from being a police officer versus being in the search and rescue field versus being in conservation or nose work, et cetera. And um, we have to kind of put those things to the side and look at the goal, which is the dog. What is going to be best for that human and dog? And many, many people hear me constantly say, you know, we have to keep getting better. And we are about training that dog in front of us versus training that dog to a methodology that we know or that we're comfortable with. And I think that's another big aspect is, you know, the tradition of what we've always done it this way, or this is what's worked always, or this is always what's worked for me uh, kind of concept. Yeah, I I totally agree. You know, um, I always say to people, it's like like in a restaurant, uh, I, I offer you a plate and on the plate there are 10 items, maybe 15 items. You only pick up what you like and what you think you can use. And so you don't need to use my 15 items. Use the items that you want. And I hope that we have such a good relationship that you put some of your items on the plate that I can use. And so um, I, there's no one way. It's, it's like cooking. If mm-hmm. we are baking a cake or we're cooking a nice meal, we can have the same ingredients. But the taste that you are producing is a little bit different than the taste that I am producing in my meals because that's about how long do you cook it, how long do you prepare it, that sort of thing. So there's a, a lot of ingredients. Um, but, you know, I think the, the, the biggest um, achievement that we can do at the moment, Cameron, um, with the experience that we have, is just to empower the people around us. Mm-hmm. And the the second um, seminar that we're going to do, the title is Being a Better Handler. And then I always laugh a little bit because then I think, oh, then we probably will miss the instructors and the trainers because some people are so busy with that title with a status oh no i'm a, i'm just a handler oh no but i'm a trainer oh i'm an instructor and then i say hey for me there's no title we all are working with dogs and we all are busy with training dogs we all are busy with influencing manipulating behavior or the environment that is um, um that is also influencing the behavior as mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so for me there is no difference for me between a handler and trainer or an instructor. Mm-hmm. If you ask me what is the difference, then I say, okay, if I looking into the fact that I need an instructor or a trainer, I expect them to be a little bit more creative than a handler. So some handlers are not so creative. I can understand it because especially when you begin, then it's so difficult. You have so many different ways how to train and you're a little bit um, yeah, I, I don't know how to say that, but you are not there yet. You're not feeling so comfortable, but yep. if you're getting more comfortable, if you're getting more creative, you get more speed and more skill sets, then you can grow what people say to a trainer or an instructor. But for me, it's all the same. So if I'm looking to people in general, then I say, okay, I'm, I'm looking for people that I work with that are, are open enough and that are 
willing enough to step out of the comfort zone. I need people that are good listeners, not only listening, but also there to ask questions, the, the deeper questions, the curious questions. I need people that can be a good uh, in communication, that they can explain what they are doing or what they are about to get uh, doing. They need to be open for new approaches. They have to be able to let go of the paradigms eh? because a lot of people are really tense with some paradigms. They are, they are blocking them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I'm really looking in positive coaching skills for people because it's so easy to be negative to other people. I need positive coaching people. Yeah. Um, and one of the biggest things, they need to be able to give feedback without judgment. And that's really difficult for a lot of people, but give uh, feedback, give positive feedback forward to people without judging them. Because, you know, um, if somebody new, new is stepping into the room that we are judging within five seconds, between five and six and 10 seconds, we're putting a label on the forehead of somebody yeah. that's coming into the room that we have never seen before. That's really a, an eye-opener for me. When I saw that sort of research, I thought, oh my God, we really have to stop that, doing that sort of thing. No, it's it's very true. And what we didn't discuss yet, but that is one of the most important things if you're working with animals, that you are self-reflective. That you can look, okay, what happened? What is this uh, doing with me? Why do I get this sort of feelings? Um, Be self-reflective. How can I learn from this situation? Absolutely. No, that's that's a big one. You're going deep. Yeah, I know. Right. And well, and this kind of leads a good opportunity to go into a training example. So, um, and what I mean by that is let's talk about antecedents or the chain of communication from handler to dog. So a, a easy way for the listeners to understand is what we mean by antecedent is the dogs will start picking up on what are things that happen prior to reinforcement or prior to something reinforcing in general. So many times as handlers, we have tells that we do. Uh, Many times these tells are unintentional, but the dog has picked up on them. The other part of these tells is they are also uh, inconsistent. So, Talk about the importance of having clear signals for a detection dog. Obviously, the, one of the biggest things is body language. So when handlers um, know where something's at, they typically or fairly consistently do something. And the dog has picked up on this as a cue in order to solve the detection problem. So Talk about that. Talk about some of the, I guess, the common ones that handlers go through that the dogs are picking up on that we have to be better. And this might be also a great point where you can come in and start talking about condition reinforcers and, you know, also signals that are non-reinforcing. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I'm, I'm a, a big advocate about uh, working double blind because I, in, in my philosophy, if you're not working double blind, then you better cannot train because you shoot yourself in the foot all the time. You often see that when people are doing detection work in a, in a group of people, so two or three observers are there, you're walking through um, a house or a big hallway or whatever where your detection area is. So the dog handler is working there for the dog handler is blind, for the dog is blind, of course, but then the people in the back 
they are talking and suddenly when the dog is coming close to the height, then people all stop talking. Well, for the dog, that's a big eye-opener. Okay, it's probably I'm really in the hot zone now because they stopped talking. Uh, so dogs are really capable to read not only the, the body language of the handler, but dogs are also capable to read the body language of the people that are there also, the, the judge or the observers or whatever. So that's one of the things. And the other things is that the handler, even if you don't want it, you always give some signals to the dog. So please work double blind. That's the best way to prepare your dog for the real operations or the exams or the nosework competitions or whatever you want to do. Because they they are not communicating with us by language. The only communication they do with us is by body language. And they're so sharp on our body language that you cannot hide it, you cannot mask it. So please work double blind. Yeah, though the, and I'll give two perspectives. So from the, I would say typical sport dog handler, um, body language things that I see frequently is they will walk the dog back and forth across an area, or they walk really close to where the odor's at. And there's a philosophy that's been passed around that was taken, I think, too far, in my opinion, of where if you are in the sport of nose work, it is a bad thing to make a presentation with your hand to check something. And it and the the extreme it's gone to is they won't present at all with their hand, but yet they will use body pressure and and push the dog through body pressure to an area for the dog to sniff. Or they'll just walk repeatedly over and again an area until the dog sniffs whatever it is. So if the dog is sniffing the ground and it's near something that's kind of productive to be sniffed, they'll just keep going back and forth, back and forth until the dog eventually comes up and sniffs that area. Flip side, the professional handlers, a big body uh, language cue that is used was based off of the belief that you could not, you should not be caught throwing your toy in or rewarding your dog. So the handlers had to position themselves in some way behind the dog in order to deliver this reward item without being caught. So when the dog was working something, the handler started doing their, I call it that little dance of going back and forth, getting themselves ready to get behind the dog so they could reward the dog. In either circumstance, sport or professional, the handlers are giving off tremendous uh, body language cues. And like you just said, the dog's number one way to communicate to us is reading body language. And of course, I share this frequently in the cognition classes, how dogs are the main, you know, creature or animal that has the ability to read human communication uh, better than dogs. Dogs are the best at this. No other species has this ability as yeah. strong as the dogs do. So when we're doing these body language cues. These are all things that are kind of antecedents or these are the things that are preceding the rewarding event. And then like you said, when these things happen, the dog's expectation of reward goes way up, which in some cases gets the dogs to do a response or a behavior that we then believe there must be something there and there may or may not be. And of course, in the stage of training, when we know the answer, then we're just doing nothing more but confirming to the dog that these body language cues are very important. 
And at the end of the day, that's not what we want to have happen. Yeah, totally agree. You know, dogs are really weak in making decisions. And um, that weakness that they have is um, for them a big help if the handler is giving them some cues. So if a dog is um, doing some detection work somewhere, and suddenly he smells uh, an odor that thinks, hey, this can be my target odor. And he looks around to daddy or mommy behind him and he sees the sum of the body uh, uh, language that daddy or mommy is confirming. Yeah, that is your target odor. Then one and one is one. And the dog is sitting down or laying down, giving them alert. And the reinforcement is there. So you, you have to imagine if you do that 10, 15 times, uh, if the dog is not seeing those uh, cues anymore, the dog starts to hesitate and uh, give you some other reactions and it will probably not alert on the target order if it's there. Yep. And that's one of the things. Um, and you know, there was a, when you were talking about uh, all the, the, the little rules that are there, you cannot do this or you have to do that. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's almost like human resource in big companies at the moment. So, if you have a good employee that is working really good, a good attitude, perseverance, ownership, or whatever, and you want to put that position, that person in another position, then human resource is coming there, and they will explain, yeah, but he didn't have the, the right diplomas or the certificate, mm. so we cannot put him in that position. Mm-hmm. And then I say to then I say to human resource in my big police organization, yeah, look that guy or that girl is perfect for the job uh, it turned out to be one of the big talents yeah but human resource is telling me you first need to have that sort of diploma <sighs> and then i think oh we are missing the 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 the, the common sense over here mm-hmm. and that's also that scares me a little bit in the detection world at the moment that we start to lose common sense sense because Cameron, you also work in the in the real world if we are, not, if we were not allowed to use our hands to ask the dog, "Hey, can you sniff here for a moment, or can you check this for me?" Then we probably would have missed at least fifty or more percent of for the sure. finds that we did in the, in the Absolutely. Dog. So it is. It, it, it's always teamwork. It's not well. You are the dog. You have to do everything. No, it's teamwork. You have to be there helping your partner. Of course, his nose is much better than ours. But I think we are there behind the dog or with the dog to be more systematic and help him to um, do a systematic search. And then you need some um, some cues for the dog. You need to use your fingers or your hands or your body position mm-hmm. to make the dog especially curious in some parts of the, the area that you're searching for. And you know, before we know it, and I, I have seen that in other sports too, before we know it, we put in so many rules that we start to forget the the red line, what we are actually doing. Mm-hmm. And before we know it, we take away also the pleasure for not only the dog, but also the pleasure for the human. Inside. And especially nose work, I really love the nose work because it's giving so much fun, so much pleasure to, for a lot of uh, dog owners and also a lot of dogs. Um, but if we start adding more and more rules in that, then, well, then we lose what I'm trying to bring back in the in the master classes, 
we lose the the enjoyment of the people. And yeah. I always say it's it's perfect if you you need to use your brain eh? if you if you're finding detection dogs or other dogs you need to use your brain. But please also use your heart, also use your stomach feeling. Uh, bring back the joy because that's what I see when I'm starting to empower people. And I, I, I ask them, when did you start with dogs? Most of them really fanatic trainers. The, the, they started when they were four or five years old with dogs. And then I ask them, go back when you were 11, 12 years old. How were you trained then comparing to now? Yeah, but now I have so many rules in my head. I'm, I'm so st- stuck in, in my world at the moment. And I say, well, go back to when you were 11, 12 years old, when there were not so many rules. And you know, that's the same by being in a, uh, growing up when you're becoming an adult. Before you know it, you have so many rules, so many things that you have to think about that you cannot be who you are. Exactly. When you are a little child. No, and it's... So, well, you hit on something I, that I bring up all the time really quickly is make detection fun. You know, yeah, it, it should be, like you just said, a, a something I get to experience and do with my dog that's fun. Let's solve this puzzle. Let's see if we can find what is out here potentially. Um, and, yeah. it, and there is, you know, I'm going to bring up the sport world on this one, and it happens on the professional side, just different topics, but on the topic of presentations, um, people were afraid to do the presentations because they didn't want to be too involved or that maybe the dogs were more sensitive or reactive. So they said, Hey, presentations are bad. And then that gets translated to all these trainers and all these systems out there that says, Oh no, don't do presentations. Presentations are bad. No, not necessarily. Presentations are helpful just because let's say, you know, we, someone stabbed themselves with a fork that now means we all have to use chopsticks. And I'm stealing that line from, yeah, from, yeah, yeah. from what my friend Ivan Balabanov said on one of his podcasts, you know, just because it didn't work for this type of dog or this handler or whatever, doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater. We, we, these, there's yeah. still really good reasons, especially in the sport of nose work where things are timed. I may want to get my dog to check something and then move on. But if I don't yep. make that presentation and I just walk by the spot like five, six times until the dog finally sniffs it, I've wasted valuable time. So it's you you use yeah, but, what works for you and your dog. But you know, Cameron, I, I didn't um, did research on that, but I also think you, before you know it, you start to harm the relation between you and your dog a little mm-hmm. bit. Mm-hmm. So um, imagine that you and I are in the classroom and I'm trying to teach you something and there are six different objects in the whole classroom and I want you to um, memorize the, the sequence of the, the objects that we are passing by. And I see in your body language that you still don't get it, but I'm not saying anything to you, I'm not pointing it out, but I keep walking with you to the classroom, left and right, left and right, left and right. Well, I think after eight Times you will say to me, Simon, what are you doing? Do I do something wrong? <laughs> it, 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 yeah, you know, and I, I mean, dogs are not stupid, so they are living with you every day. They mm-hmm. know how you act, they know how you behave, and then suddenly you start to behave in a really strange way <laughs> that is doing something with the relation, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, how do you, what are some of the things that you do as a trainer to? 
get handlers to communicate to their dogs better in detection. I, I know we brought up oh, condition you know, reinforcers, but I'll let you go from there. Yeah, I, I love uh, the odor recognition test. And um, I just wrote in a, a really nice online course about odor recognition tests in a way that people start to love them also. And there are also fun odor recognition tests in that. Not the, only the official ones, but only the fun part. And that is something that I really use a lot to empower trainers. Make an odor recognition test in a way, and you can, I, I designed it in a way that you can even, when you're all alone, you can do a double bind. You cannot understand it, but if you see the, the, the text and the videos, you start to understand the, the, the fun part of that. If you do that, then people start to really empower themselves and their dogs because then mm-hmm. suddenly I see people with a big smile doing the, the, the dog work. But, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I have them. One of the things that comes up frequently in the detection dog world and the professional side and even on the sports side too is the yeah. theory of, oh, don't stand still while you're searching. If you stand still, you might cue your dog. And in some cases, of course, that statement is correct. However, what I try to get people to understand is, or when I train the handlers to do is technically you should be able to do anything. That dog's job is to continue to search for odor despite whatever it is I do. And, and it learns to not trust all of my cues because my cues aren't really predictable. The thing that is predictable is whatever my condition reinforcer is when the dog hears that it'll know that this means reward. So their job is to search that space, whatever it is. And if there's odor there, tell me and tell me by doing whatever it is I train the dog to do and hold that position no matter what I do or no matter where I'm at until you hear your condition reinforcer. And by making it, go ahead. Yeah. It's funny that you bring it up because when we started with a radio guidance work, many years ago that was one of the first first thing that we were going to do when you give a dog and a cue by radio sit down uh, grab something fetch something let it go or whatever we were always changing our body position so we were doing push-ups we were uh, turning around we were running we were uh, doing tiger moves whatever to make sure that the dog was only listening to the radio and not looking at the handle skills and that's mm-hmm. the same in detection if I do a recognition test with students, I let them do push-ups or run away or do something strange that the dog is looking at his hand for a brief moment and then think, no, the only way to get that uh, reinforced conditioner, the, the clicker or the whistle, uh, to get my reinforcement, the only way to do that is keep working on this. And whatever he's doing there, well, he's a funny guy, but I want to work <laughs> here because I want to get my reinforcement. Yep. And, it, yeah, I... I well, we I don't do enough what, proofing. A lot of trainers spend so much time trying to problem solve to me a a specific thing they see versus addressing what the true problem is. They're going off of a symptom versus addressing the problem. The problem is... Cameron, I have a really nice example from uh, just, uh, I think, a few years ago. It was uh, because Corona stopped the traveling, but I, I was giving an, uh, a workshop in uh, Scandinavia. Mm-hmm. There were 30 observers, and uh, I, I, I made a really nice search over there with a lot of objects inside somewhere. And there was a, a, a person coming in with a dog, and uh, the person was talking in Scandinavia to uh, the, the observers over there, and I couldn't understand that. So I asked the observers, 
what was this person telling you at the moment? Well, we all have to be quiet. We are not uh, allowed to talk. We have to sit to the side. We cannot open our pockets or something, grab something from our bags because if we do that, then the dog is uh, really distracted and really tense. So uh, that's uh, what we need to do. And I thought, that's funny. That's telling something, not telling something about the dog, but it's telling something about the trainer that is walking into the room. So then I put on some music, some some nice music about um, Under Pressure and David Bowie. Yeah, you know, the trainer was not happy with that, but eventually the trainer started to understand within 10 minutes, oh my God, I need to work through this. Yeah, you need to to work through that sort of moments because then your dog will become better and you will become better as a trainer. And that is one of the reasons that people really need to go uh, to visit the, the, the workshops that we are giving together in Las Vegas, Cameron, because we know these sort of drills and we know how to empower people and we know how to bring the smiles back to trainers that are working now on their intense situation. So really people, if you really want to learn some new lessons and really want to do your work with a big smile and open heart and relax and enjoy patience, visit us because Cameron and I uh, and I can give you that self-confidence that you are uh, that, that you are searching for yeah we want I'm sure yeah we want everybody to be successful and and do the training that is based off of what works best for you and your dog but also follows sound communication principles which means you know we, we're not trying to do trickery to our dogs. We're not trying to do doggy magic uh, because none of those things exist. What it does exist nope. is good, clear communication. This is the task. This is how you get your reinforcement. This is what you must do in order to receive the reinforcement. And when you do these things, I will clearly signal to you, hey, you're right. And you can come engage with me and the reward a lot of times is not only just the delivering of the reward, but the engagement with you as a handler, how important that engagement from you as the handler with your dog in that whole rewarding sequence that in itself is extremely powerful for the dog more so than just delivering a toy or delivering a piece of food. It's the engagement and how you do that, which will increase the dog's desire to keep doing these things and do these things under pressure, under distraction, and knowing that the payoff is going to be really good, uh, depending on the stage of training we're in and so on and so forth. So having that, you know, like I said, breaking it down again for the listeners is I ask or I give my dog the cue to go search. It knows to go search despite whatever's going on. When it comes into odor to do whatever the trained signal is that I taught it, whatever behavior I told the dog to do. So if it's sitting down or laying down or focusing, uh, do this until you hear your condition reinforcer. As soon as you hear your condition reinforcer, we'll engage. My body position in any of these stages while you're searching or while you're at odor is irrelevant. It doesn't mean anything. What means anything is stay there. Yeah, totally correct. There, there are a lot of uh, stories going on, a lot of uh, assumptions, a lot of um, uh, excuses. Um, and you and I are really capable to get rid of all those excuses and go back to the real world, to the real thing, 
And the real thing is uh, recognizing the odor, giving an alert, and wait for your condition to bring your pressure. Mm-hmm. And then all the happiness will start. Yes. And, and you know, eventually it's... Yeah, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, go ahead. Well, eventually it's all about respect, attention, validation, and some autonomy. And the autonomy is not only for you as a trainer, but you have to give your... Uh, there's also some autonomy in searching and mm-hmm. working and mm-hmm. making the alerts. Absolutely. And that's, a, that's like I said, back to the important, important point of the dog knows what its job or task is at this point is to go work. Or, or, and I say work, meaning go hunt for the odor if it's in this space, which brings me to a, a, another very common question that people get or have is, well, how do I solve when my dog indicates or alerts to something that's distracting or proofing? Do I wait them out? Do I tell them no? Um, what's the best answer? You know, obviously you and I will both agree. Well, it'll depend on what the reason is and what's going on at that moment as to what our best answer is. But I would like for you to talk about or give an example of how you deal with it because we can't wait things out all the time. How do you use or what do you do sometimes when waiting out isn't the option? Do you use a, uh, a negative or no reward uh, signal or what are some of the things that you do to kind of communicate to the dog that that's not desired right there? Yeah, very good question. It's a, a little bit um, depending on the stage where you are and the level what you're working on in your protocol. Um, so the, the biggest mistake people are doing is if they're waiting out, then dogs will have conflicts with duration frames because often those moments are going almost together. Yeah. So I. I I just in the beginning I take away the the distractor mm-hmm. that the dog is making a false indication, um, or just opening things that the dog can see. Hey, I'm sitting here in front of a cupboard, but there's really nothing there. When I open the, the little doors, oh, there's nothing there. Or I take away some objects. Um, but if the dog is really believing in it, and I'm not working on the duration training at the moment, also, I just use a simple no, mm-hmm. no, no. And we are moving on. Yep. Um, and, you know, I sh- at the moment I see a lot of stuff on the internet that people are putting some leash pressure and, and all other stuff. And I think, oh my God, let it go. Please don't do that. Mm-hmm. If you have a good relation with your dog, it's the same. If your dog is uh, stepping onto the road, if it's a busy road and you can say no, no to your dog and he's just standing still looking at you, okay, it's not the time to cross the, the road at the moment yet. Yeah? Mm-hmm. That sort of relation, if you have that with your dog, you can use that also in your detection work. Absolutely. So if my dog is walking in my living room and he's walking into the kitchen, he sees a nice steak on the on the uh, over there. Then I'm, because I'm I'm cooking a nice steak and he's looking at the steak and he's looking at me and I said no no, then he will not jump on the counter and grab the steak. That's the relation that I have with my dog. So if my dog is doing the detection work suddenly. Um, making that sort of mistakes or belief that it's something that is close to his target sense, then I can say, no, no, and I don't have to do more than that, and he will move on. Yeah. But I... it's all about what is the level of the communication, because mm-hmm. if you never use that sort of communication with your dog, yeah, then it's not working, or you, before you know it, you damage something into the relation with your dog. 
Yeah, no, I think a lot of people, uh, that last point you made is why they are afraid to do it, is they're afraid to, oh, well, then my dog won't want to do detection if I tell it no. And that's not the not the case, you know, but it depends on what stage of training you're in, obviously. Um, because I think the biggest struggle most are going through uh, these days when it became you know, pretty well known that waiting the dog out was one of these options to have. And then that became probably the most popular option to go with, which is wait the dog out, let the dog make a decision. And there's validity to that. Believe me, there is. But (laughs) as we, as you brought up, the issue that comes up is as you are building duration for your indication, your alert behavior, the dog will do this same duration game on that non-target. And then there's confusion. It's more about this behavior than it is about the odor. And that's the main thing that we're trying to communicate to them is that odor is not that particular distractor or proofing item is not what you do this at. So having that communication that you talked about, uh, which is, you know, for me, I have, just like you said, I have that no reward signal, which is no, or, you know, whatever you choose it to be signifies to them that that answer is not going to work, you know, and then to move on. And sometimes I might help them move on by just like you said, presenting to a new area, you know, potentially, or maybe opening a drawer going, Oh, look, there's nothing here. You know, whatever it is will depend on the dog in front of you and how much you do will depend. Sometimes it might mean just simply resetting your area and in your area There's one item that has target odor in it and then one item that has the non-target or distracting odor in it. And they get no reinforcement here, but immediately get reinforcement here. I think where um, people start to struggle is they try to solve the problem in the main training setup they had initially. And there's too much time or distance between the correct answer and the incorrect answer. So the connection doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the the, the games of uh, waiting out, I do that, of course, in the beginning, but I do that only with two targets. So mm-hmm. I start with one target, then two targets, and then only two targets. And then it's, I'm not in the duration and that sort of stuff yet. So yep. then I can use that uh, that weighing out of the, of the dog that is working ideal for that. Yep. But if, as soon as you go into the duration game, then it's really nice to have a no or, uh, uh, or mm-hmm. something else mm-hmm. to... Uh, to stop that sort of things, and we have to get rid of one of the biggest myths myth in the detection world: all detection dogs will make mistakes, mm-hmm. all dogs will make false positives, false negatives. I never have seen a trainer. I heard a lot of trainers, but I've never seen a trainer that had a dog that say, "Well, my dog is never making mistakes." That is a myth. <laughs> <laughs> Detection dog will make false positive, false yep. negative. So you have to make sure that you can handle those. Absolutely. So you have to understand, and, and you have to set up your, your training environment, your protocols in a way that you will create false negatives and false positives. Yeah. So you can you can work on that. Okay, how do I cope with a false negative? How do I cope with a false positive? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And then, and please, if if somebody really uh, ever meet a guy or a girl that is telling them, "I have a dog that has never made mistakes," please let him go. <laughs> yeah. really I would I would love to find the person whose dog and them have never made a mistake because it does not exist. But uh, I've seen many, uh, I think, handlers whose training records 
try to paint the picture that they've never made mistakes, but uh, yeah. we, we know that that's not true either. The, you know, there was, uh, this piggybacks on something else that I think a lot of handlers see, and I'm just curious your, your take on it. Um, so obviously many times in training, we'll set up as a trainer, our search area and our search area has however many hides in it. And then we run dog yeah. number one, dog number two, dog number three, etc. And in that search, let's just say dog number two gives a false alert to a drawer of some type or whatever it is. Or if it's containers on the ground for the nose work world, uh, that one dog, you know, sniffs or puts a paw on a box, but it's not correct. We see many times the subsequent dogs that come into that search after that dog had made that false indication and these other dogs react very strongly to that. Talk a little bit about that and how uh, you might go through problem solving that issue that comes up because of when dogs run after each other, something like that occurs. And then that's what the dog was using to solve the equation too, which is not just a human, but the other dogs that have run through the search area. Yeah, really interesting topic. Um, you know, if you visualize and predict A to understand the B for behavior and achieve a consequence, then we humans always think we give the dog an A and antecedent to go search, give it search view. We expect that the dog is going to search the target odor and give us a passive uh, alert. And then the consequence is a nice reinforcement. But the dog is only interested in the reinforcement. So if the dog is walking somewhere, he's sniffing somewhere, and he's sniffing the, the odor of the dog that was previous there, and that is helping him to get the reinforcement quicker, then the dog will learn that. The dog will not use 30, 40 repetitions for that. Two or three repetitions that are successful, it's enough for learning that sort of new cues. So, yeah, that's a, a big problem. So, you only can handle that by um, manipulating the environment where you're working in. So, if you, for instance, if you play with your dog, yeah, and you put your finger a little bit in his mouth, so you have some saliva of your dog on your finger, and you put your finger everywhere, so you have human sense saliva of your dog, you are contaminating the area really quickly also with that sort of thing. Please do it once if you are training in a group of uh, um, dog trainers and nobody's doing that sort of stuff. Use the saliva of some dog in the place somewhere. You can see a lot of false uh, positives there mm -hmm. at the moment. Mm -hmm. What I like to <laughs> what I like to do is uh, just uh, changing the environment all the time. I, I use uh, a lot of uh, audio delivery devices. So mm -hmm. um, one, what I did, for instance, is uh, I had a, a training house. I was really lucky to have a training house, and I put everywhere. I think forty, fifty magnets everywhere, uh -huh. and the odor, the odor delivery devices. I put them in a big box and I shoved them all around. So I had no clue where the targets were. I used five or six different targets and a lot of distractors. And then in the training house, you put uh, all those other delivery devices everywhere. So on the magnets, on the chairs, on the cupboards, on the uh, tables, uh, just on the walls, in the visual side, in objects everywhere. And then you ask the dog to go there. Uh, to do the detection. And then you see dogs 
just hitting on every other delivery device they see or they <laughs> yep, yep. You see, yeah, you see dogs running on all the dispatches. You see dogs that are really going for the target audience. And then you hear all the excuses of all the dog handlers. Yeah, but the, yeah, I can see the other delivery device. So it's normal that my dog is picking that sort of thing out. And I say, no, the only thing that we want is that the, that the dog is really using his nose to find mm-hmm. the target out and not, mm-hmm. dis- not is distracted or whatever. And then I'm not doing in those training situations there. I'm not using gloves and washing my hands all mm-hmm. the time or whatever. No, human scent, dog scent, everything around in that little training area is okay to focus the dog only to go for the target odor over there. Or if you, that, that is one of the things that we didn't discuss, Cameron. If you are, if you and I are working together a lot of the time and you are hiding all the stuff from me, mm-hmm. then my dog is not only going there inside and looking for the target odor, then my dog is going and said, was Cameron in here? Yes, yep. no. Yep. And, if, and if the dog is going into a building and he's not sniffing Cameron, then the dog is not going into uh, the search mode that we expect him to go. Uh-huh. And I've seen, that sort, I've seen that sort of things happening. I was training a, a guy and he, he went to operations for a long time and I didn't see him for uh, some time. And then um, he was coming back for, um, for a training. I prepared a whole building, I think 20, 30 rooms for him with a lot of stuff. I wanted to give him and his dog a really nice feeling. And uh, they were going in, they find nothing. I said, nothing, that's not possible. Um, well, I learned to be patient, so we decided to drink a cup of coffee and think about it instead of uh, fixing something in the, the, the yeah. training area that we did. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, hmm, I, I said, the guy that you're working with, uh, almost every day. He's here too. He said, yeah, he's here too. I said, ask him to go into the building. Not touching anything, but just go into the building and all the rooms are coming back. So the guy did it with a big question mark uh, on his head because he had no clue why I asked him to do that. Then the dog was going back after the coffee and the dog was hitting uh, the target orders. So <laughs> those little cues were really important. Oh, yeah. So you have to, uh, yeah, you have to think about even those little details. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, dogs are using the, the the smells of other dogs to find not only the target odor, but also they just try it. They just hit it. They just try to get a reinforcement for that. Yep. And the only thing to to come over that is using more and more of those uh, sort of situations. And and that's what you know. Um, I think handlers, you know, whether you're sport or professional need to always consider is who commonly sets up your training area is, you know, because we're creatures of habits. We go to our same trainer all the time or even worse in a sense is we only train with one trainer and it's not, you know, not um, promoted or encouraged to go train with other trainers because, even just being able to expose to the other trainers, training aids, them putting it out. These are actually beneficial things to your training, regardless of whether you, you like their training methodology or style, just getting out there with them to have them put odors out for you. You run their odors in the way that they store them or handle them or contaminate them, whatever it is only gives your dog a better understanding that, hey, 
that if target is there, these, these chemicals I'm trained to detect are there. I need to tell you not the cheat code, which is, Oh, well, you know, this trainer isn't, yeah, isn't here. So therefore it's not there because that happens. And if, if, if handlers, if you self-reflect and you think about the reinforcement history that that dog has received by this setup by your trainer or by you in the way that your training odors are, are packaged or contained or set out. All of those factors are significant in the connection of that overall odor picture that that dog is taking away to help solve what gets them reinforcement. And like you said earlier, the dog's number one goal is to get reinforcement and it's going to find whatever cues or signals that are fairly consistent to help them solve that problem, especially the dogs in cognition that are really high in inference. Those dogs really do that really well. Um, Memory dogs do it just in a different way. So it's imperative of us to diversify these things. So the dog goes, Oh, okay. It's really just this chemical is the main thing I'm looking for. Not these other layers that are, you know, unfortunately, sometimes frequently there. And then all of a sudden, when you go to a certification or real search or a trial, and all of those other contributors are not there, this is where you start seeing those dogs go, well, I'm not 100% sure anymore, because, you know, you know, the trainer scent's not there, the containment of this odor smell is not there, and on and on and on. Yeah, Totally agree. When I, when I started many years ago in the detection world, I was always stunned about the fact that the the, the trainer uh, that was the head of the trainer in that time, and I was a, a young guy coming there, and he said, "Well, uh, Simon, now you are at the level that you can hide something for me and for my dog." I said, "Oh, well, wonderful. Well, you go inside. You cannot hide it so high. You cannot hide it so low. You have to uh, hide it in this way, not too deep." Uh, you know, you get a lot of instructions, and those instructions are really messing up the, the quality of the dog work, because eventually the dog is getting used to how things are hidden. Mm-hmm. And I remember I remember that uh, I had a, a friend that was a school principal, and uh, um, I asked him uh, at some time, can you hide some narcotics for me in your school when everybody's uh, away? So in the night, he, he had the, the keys of the, the school. I asked him, can you hide something for me? And we wait for one and a half or two hours and we go to, to find it. So I gave him no instructions. I gave him a lot of different um, products. He was hiding it in his uh, school. And after that, we were going, uh, going in. He was not there. And we couldn't find it at all. It was in the beginning of my career. I did not understand it. But of course, later I was laughing about it because I... Do understand it now. If you hide it always in a certain way, mm-hmm. if you hide it always with the same people. If you always hide your own training stuff, yeah, then you'll find it. But if it's becoming what you just described, if it's becoming different, yeah, then you'll shoot yourself in the foot because you cannot hide it anymore. Mm-hmm. And you know what? What is what is giving me the most headache at those those moments that a lot of dog trainers don't want to see this. They just put their heads in the sand and they uh-huh. don't want to hear it. They don't want to see it. They don't want to train about it. So I did with some police trainers. I, I, I hired a house somewhere, a holiday house. 
uh, I made sure that there were people living there for a few days, so there was a lot of human contamination there. And then after that, I hide uh, different explosives, different narcotics, weapons, and uh, that sort of stuff. And I ask uh, door cameras to go in and to search and to just put a little poster. They were not uh, allowed to open things. They were not allowed to look into things. I just asked them, if you don't give an alert somewhere, just put a post-it there. And if you're ready, you go out of the house, you have maximum 20 minutes to search. If you go out of the house, I will go in later to check uh, the little post-it. It was really a disaster, Cameron. I bet. It was a disaster. Yeah. There were, from the 10 dogs, there were only two dogs that were finding one item, and the most dogs didn't find it at all, or they gave a lot of false uh, positives. Mm-hmm. And you know, that is not a problem because that sort of things happen. That sort of things happen to me. That sort of things happen to you. Mm-hmm. But if you're not ref- if you're not reflective, if you're not doing anything with that sort of things, if you're not saying to yourself, mm, maybe I have a little problem here. But if you start to um, um, uh, attack the the person that are hiding the stuff or that are designing that sort of test, mm-hmm. then then you shoot yourself in the foot and you really have a problem. So, yeah, I, th- I think we still have some work to do in the dog. Of course, industry. of course. No, yeah. and, and it's, it, this is why now I frequently, so we, we have a handler school going on right now. And each search, pretty much every search we do is filmed. And at the end of the day, the trainers or myself, depending on who's running the training situation or the evolution at that time, we go back and review the videos of the search. So this way, new handlers get to see the perspective that we do from a distance. You know, a lot of times we all know as handlers, we're very focused on the dog or maybe the environment if something's going on and we miss so many things that happen. And by doing these video reviews, it really helps show how much, or in some cases, how little we were involved in that search. And it, yeah. it, it really helps uh, reflect and it really helps handlers start to hone in on specific behaviors they can see when watching it again on video, what the dog does at odor versus what the dog does at something that's distracting or of interest to the dog, but it's non-target. And just seeing those videos of their dogs working in different environments and over and over again really helps them dial in and go, okay, you know, these are things I need to do or these are things to pay attention to when my dog is working because this is what my dog typically does when it's at odor. And, or this is what my dog typically does when it's distracted by something. So um, I highly encourage people to uh, utilize video far more frequently than we, than we have in the past. Um, I mean, this day and age, whether you like it or not, you're on video all the time anyway. So, um, yeah. you know, if you're a professional and you're shying away from it because you don't want that video documentation of the error, well, like we said earlier, cat's out of the bag. We already know you're not perfect. So in society these days, don't want to try to listen to our BS when we try to pretend that we are perfect because we're not. We need to talk about what caused a problem or where the problem is, but we also talk about and demonstrate how we addressed it and made it better or worked on it. That's all people really want from us at the end of the day is that transparency and that honesty 
about what we do and how we got there. That we are, we're not these like magic, um, you know, uh, uh, magic, you know, uh, elixir type of salesman or snake oil salesman. That's what I was thinking of. We were, we're not a snake oil salesman. We, we have to say, Hey, look, we have a tool, which is the dog. It helps us be better at certain tasks, like locating evidence, locating or identifying, um, lost or missing people or items or what have you. These are, these things aren't perfect, but here's how we, here's what we did to get there. Here's what we did to get to where we're at right now. And when we've had problems, this is what we've done to address these problems and to make ourselves improve or to help ourselves improve. And versus only writing down all the great things that happened, not talking about the things that didn't happen. Cause like you said, it's like some dark secret is, you know, oh yeah, we're perfect. And every handler knows they're not. And I think many on the professional side need to reflect what they document and be transparent. And the more you're transparent about you and your dog's ability, the more you're going to actually be trusted by the legal system when under review. But when you try to give out this illusion that you're really, really good and you're this high 90 percentile and look how amazing we are. Yeah, there's enough around these days and enough, you know, whether it be the TV shows like Live PD for us here in America and other things that clearly show we have issues. We need to also be very transparent in how we go about working our dogs and how we go about addressing whenever an issue comes up, because, again, we're not perfect. So, you know, yeah, I, I love it. You know, people are not perfect. Machines are not perfect. Tenders are not perfect. And dogs are not perfect. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I see a dog is scoring 100% and it's perfect, then I know there's something wrong. And um, I always say the handler is the interface. So, I mean, the dog is the sensor, the handler is the interface, and the mm-hmm. command structure is looking at the interface. And if the interface is not reliable, then the whole chain will be not reliable mm-hmm. anymore. Absolutely. And if we are, if we are open and if we are clear about, okay, uh, probably it's uh, 70, 80, whatever percent mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, honest or clear or whatever you call it, then you have, uh, you have the dog, you have the people, you have the data, you have a lot of uh, intel. Um, then eventually you can um, build a really strong evidence change or whatever you uh, will mm-hmm. call it. Mm-hmm. You know, the other part, if you collect data, if you collect video, a lot of handlers are really afraid for that. But what we have to um, uh, explain is that data, that video is helping them to grow. Because mm-hmm. if I'm looking at my videos from a few years ago, I'm really embarrassed. But now I think, oh, no, it's not embarrassing. It's helping me to understand, look, how I'm growing, what I'm capable to do now i couldn't do that uh, some years ago mm-hmm. and that is why video is helping me that is why data is helping me yep um, no, our ego gets you know, in the way yeah our ego gets in the way and you know uh, uh, in the old days uh, a few hundred years ago we had a lot of magic because if you couldn't explain something it was magic mm-hmm. nowadays it is not magic anymore. In 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 a, in a difficult world, we have a word. We have a stochastic and a deterministic uh, deterministic process. Stochastic means you just do something and let's see what happens. And deterministic means 
that you're really looking into um, control groups, that you're looking into, okay, if I give uh, this injection to 50 people and I give 50 people a placebo, what is happening then? Mm -hmm. What is happening with the mind? What is happening with the body? And that is something that I really like, that sort of research, and we don't do that enough with dogs at the moment, because, yeah, what you are bringing in, um, bringing up, it's egos, it's shame, it's guilt, everything involved. Mm -hmm. And if we can take that out of the dog community, if we are looking into what a wonderful uh, sensor we are capable to work with, and then we start to understand this is magic that we have in our hand. This is something that we really can help um, the community. Because often we cannot find with machine sensors or whatever what we are looking for, and the dog is capable to do that. But we all have to be honest, a dog cannot score 100%, like a human cannot be 100% either. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if when I was uh, working on this uh, uh, street cop as a patrol officer, mm -hmm. And we were going out in the night shift with 20 people, um, and we were coming uh, back in the morning. There were a few arrests, a few of the drunk drivers, and a few uh, of this. But there were also 10 or 12 uh, cops that were not having some arrests. So do I have to fire them? Are they not good enough? No, it's a combination what we do. And that's also what we are doing with dogs. It's a combination about the dog's nose, about the intelligence of the, the human uh, behind it. It's the intel that we get before we start an operation. So it's everything involved. But please let, uh, let's try to keep it in, a, in an honest way mm -hmm. and in a way that we can also collect data and do some research. Absolutely. No, without a doubt. And, and you know, it, it's, it's always fun when me and you get together and we have these conversations and I look forward to uh, when you get out here in June and, you know, for those that are listening, this is just kind of like a uh, lack of a better term. This is a teaser of what you'll get to go through uh, with Simon and I when we do the seminars together uh, in June. Um, so yeah. how do people, if they want to reach out to you or ask questions, uh, how do they find you? How do they get a hold of you? website so maybe you can put it somewhere in the link yep, www.simonprince.com so a really interesting information out there um and for rest i'm really um reactive is that a good word so yep. i respond really quickly normally when i'm not traveling mm -hmm. i uh, respond quickly and um yeah, I'm a curious guy. I'm always open-minded. So whatever you want to ask me, ask me, and I, I will get back to you as soon as I can. Perfect. And yes, I will I will share the link to your website in the show notes so that way you guys can email them. And what we'll do too is when you come out here, we'll kind of continue this conversation and go further with it and we'll record a podcast in person together. Uh, so that way people can actually hear you without being on a phone <laughs> and know, and it will have uh, a good conversation and maybe even share some of the things that uh, we've seen, you know, at the seminar and what we're working on and things like that and share that information with those that can't be there. Uh, so that way maybe they'll um, maybe even come out and see us when it's me, you and Pat Nolan teaching together, up in uh, Arkansas in November uh, for that seminar. Central, the electronic central. Yep. That will be fun. Oh yeah. That's going to be a lot of fun. So, well, 
I, I can't thank you enough again for coming on to the show and taking time. I know it's late uh, over there for you. Um, but again, as usual, always insightful, great collaboration. Uh, and, and thank you for sharing that information you've had on this episode. Pleasure to talk to you. Absolutely. Well, everybody, that concludes this episode of Canines Talking Sense where it's okay to be nosy and we'll talk to you guys in the next one.